happy. <clears throat> Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So a few things to examine in that section. This serpent um, was clearly different than what is here today, and we have many things on this earth that are different today than what they were at the time. Now, if that seems mythological to you, legendary, that a serpent would be capable of speaking, consider the dramatic changes in creation that we're aware of. Um, fossil record shows us human being footprints, Paluxy Riverbed, uh, that are over 20 inches long. Okay, that's a massive human being at that point. I have lots of evidence in that way. We've found asparagus ferns that are 15 feet tall. Dragonflies with 52-inch wingspans. The planet was different <laughs> than it is today. And that's a fact. Uh, this says that the serpent was able to communicate with Eve. How? We don't know. Speech, you know, subtlety, the serpent's cunning. We have to just accept that the scripture says that this beast was capable of communicating with her. The next thing I want you to take note of is in verse 3, and in my opinion... It is one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. Because this is the devil communicating through this serpent to Eve. And in that, uh, he raises the uh, question, or I said uh, verse 2, but it's, or verse 3, it's actually verse 1. Uh, Has God indeed said? The, the serpent calls into question God's word. Even as I say, you know, that this serpent was capable of communicating with Eve. If we're sitting here listening to that, thinking, I don't think I believe that. That's exactly what our enemy wants to do, is cause us to doubt God's word. And it's how he plunges all of humanity into sin in the following verses. This statement in verse 5, where he says to her, you know, God, you'll be like God, 
Uh, the day you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I would prefer to not know evil. To have no knowledge of it. To be naive and innocent. You know, the idea you know, that he paints for her is you're going to be like God. She's spent apparently every day in the cool of the evening walking in the garden with God. Experiencing his majesty. Probably asking questions. Receiving insight that is beyond anything we could know or experience. God's the most wonderful thing she has ever experienced. And she was told by Lucifer, you'll be like God. I wonder if he sort of lowered his voice at the tail end of that statement. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. <laughs> Leaving her in a place where she desired to be like God, but didn't understand in what way and didn't understand the cost. Um, I'm, I'm sharing this message this morning because of Christmas. We've just two days passed it and been very thoughtful about gifts that we receive. And every year, our family has opportunity to help and bless other people. And a lot of times, we don't know what they need or what they want. So we've gotten in the practice of trying to get a gift to people before Christmas that will help them with some of their things so they'll be freed up, you know, take care of getting them some oil, take care of getting them, you know, their Christmas dinner, their groceries, so that they have the freedom to do with their resources in other areas what they need. Paying the cost for someone in order to provide them a certain degree of freedom. Eve steps into a commitment in this situation where we're still all paying for it. The cost was immeasurable for disobeying God right here. The bill was left in the hands of humanity. Sin robbed us of God's presence. The day you'll eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, in verse 6, that it was pleasant to the eye and the tree desirable to make one wise. That's how she interpreted it, right? This isn't true. You know, take your box of decon sometime, pour the contents out, then take your granola and pour it out next to it, right? Looks really similar a lot of the time. One's deadly. The other is food. She's looking at this thinking this is a good opportunity. We experience that a lot of times. We look right at a situation which is destructive, and we interpret it as being beneficial. Good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband with her, and they ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now you've seen the depictions of these little fig leaves. I just described to you 15 foot tall asparagus ferns. Maybe, maybe this is just one big leaf, you know, 
cut a hole in the top of it and put it over your head and fold it in half and I don't know. Sew the sides together, stitch the sides together. They hid themselves in vegetation, trying to cover their nakedness. Then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? We often hear the voice of God. In our hearts and in our minds, we open the pages of the Bible and begin to read, and it points right at us, and we feel like it's accusing us. We sit in a sermon like this, and you know, perhaps there's some level of conviction. We shouldn't ever interpret the voice of God that way. Even when we're living in sin and we open up the pages and, oh, there's my sin described right there, and it feels so painful, that's God inviting us back into a relationship with him. Never is it the voice of the arresting officer shouting into the bushes, Where are you? This is the voice of a heartbroken father whose children have always met him in the same location, and today they're missing. He's brokenhearted over the broken relationship that he's experiencing here. That isn't contained here in these passages, it's just simply the statement of God saying in verse 9, where are you? But we discover the character of God as we read through his word, right? Our enemy, in the first verse of this passage, echoes down through time and continues to drive a wedge between our creator and his children. Tries to convince us that God hates us that he's angry with us, that he wants to punish us. Farthest thing from the truth. So he said, that is Adam, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now be aware, God already knows all of these answers. The scripture isn't recording these things to show us that there's some limitation to God. But what it's showing us is how gracious and kind God is. In that, all through the scripture, he holds himself back, inviting the opportunity for confession. He's trying to draw us woo us, as we might say in the old English, to win us over. You know, he can come and he can threaten and he can demand of us with his knowledge of our frailty and weakness. Instead, he invites us to confess with our mouth not only our sin, our failure, but also his lordship. The confession of knowing who he is. Here in the moment, God is inviting them. Then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate it. It's possible that that's him blaming Eve, right? In our human weakness, we tend to do this, right? I, I've sinned and it's your fault. 
You've done something that's caused me, you know. I wouldn't have become so angry and sinned so horribly if you hadn't made me so mad. You know, we, we've got all these excuses. That's possible. It is, however, a confession of truth, isn't it? His wife gave him something that was sinful, and he participated in it. That's the truth of the matter. Okay, we're going to see as we move along, Adam was supposed to lead her, in particular, into right standing with God. Oh, well, she was already in sin, and that would have separated her from God. Wouldn't it be nice if right now we could sit here and talk about how Adam had put the brakes on in this moment and said, I'm sorry, sweetheart, but this is where I have to stop. And I don't know how God is going to restore you, but what I've experienced from him is supernatural and trustworthy, and we need to go to God and see that you're restored to him. Instead, Adam follows. There's a profound biblical example, gentlemen, in the scripture, in Abraham. They've received promises from God that they're going to have a child and they are profoundly old, right? Nearing 100 years of age. Abraham and Sarah. The possibility of having children, long gone. Long gone. And because of that, they make the decision to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah offers her maid, Hagar, to have her husband sleep with Hagar and have a child and therefore fulfill the promises. And Ishmael is born. And nothing racist about it. The entire Arab world descends from Ishmael. Look at the massive worldwide conflict that we are dealing with based upon Abraham's sin. In the same relationship, in the same circumstance, God provides Abraham and Sarah with a child years later. And in the circumstance, Ishmael and Hagar, his mother, are now ridiculing Sarah and her son, the promised child from God. And the Lord tells Abraham to listen to his wife and to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Brothers, the issue comes down to we have to know when to heed the voice of our wives. And we also know have to know when to ignore and lead our wives. Sometimes they have profound insight, very often, and it's good to follow their advice much of the time. And at other times, they're going to react out of their flesh the same way that you and I do, and that's where we have to put the brakes on and say, sorry, sweetheart, we have to go a different direction here. Knowing when to heed and knowing when to lead is very, very significant. How am I going to do that? Well, how am I going to learn? Well, you have to draw near to God. 
And as you learn to listen to your heavenly father, he'll guide you in knowing when to listen to the voice of your wife and when not to. When to lead here, the woman gave me and I ate of it. The Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now here's the thing. There is a true confession in that moment. Eve, ladies, unfortunately, is admitting for all of you that it is a gross generalization, but generally speaking, women are more easily manipulated. It's, it, I know it's a generalization, but they are. And so many times people have come to me as a pastor and said, these are my circumstances. And I listen and I hear the deception in the midst of it. And I say, well, have you considered the truth in these circumstances? Oh, my goodness, you're right. We need to, men and women, be people that don't allow ourselves to be deceived. To be deceived. We need to have the wisdom of God. Need a tranquilizer dart out there, Mark? Just, I don't know. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The anaconda, scientists discovered a number of years ago, giant anaconda, on one of its most rear vertebrae, it has the outjutting bone structure of what they confess is a hip socket. That at one time they go the route of evolution, saying that it had legs and it evolved to not have legs. That's de-evolution, you know. That's not an improvement in the structure, right? If you've got legs, you know, don't get rid of them. So um, it's an interesting insight. I think within what was said there to the serpent, what's most interesting, the curse that God is placing upon, is saying you're cursed more than all the cattle, more the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. There, uh, You've probably seen in the nature shows, the snakes are constantly sticking their tongue out. They rattle their tongue in the air. They rattle their tongue in the air. Uh, they're actually collecting the dust particles from the air on their moistened tongue. They're drawing it back into their body, into what's called the Jacob's gland. And the Jacob's gland is much like your eye, literally like your eyeball. It analyzes the dust that they've sucked out of the air on their tongue, and it lends a picture, a literal picture, to their mind that is more accurate than the snake's eyes. The snake has very keen eyesight, but they gain more information about their environment from the dust of the air and the Jacob's gland than they do their eyes. They can tell the distance 
from themselves to their prey, what their prey is, the size of their prey, all from the dust of the air. They are continuously eating the dust of the air and analyzing it as part of their existence, eating it, consuming it. It's a curse. How in the world could the author of Genesis have known that? You know, thousands of years ago, nearly 6,000 years ago, when this was taking place, when the curse was placed, God knew it because he had created these creatures and is giving us that understanding. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And a lot of people make a big deal about how women hate snakes. I hate snakes. You know, most people hate snakes. Most people hate snakes. You know, most impressive thing I've ever seen uh, years ago, uh, we were doing some work in the woods, and one of the guys that was with us from, was from the Deep South. And this snake took off from where we were cutting some trees, big. And everybody there, I mean, we're in Maine. We all know there's no venomous you know, snake. That jolted all of us, just that movement, and you know, takes off through the underbrush. The guy from the Deep South, as it goes by him, reaches right out, grabs the tail of that snake, one stealth move, and goes whack, and lays the dead snake down on the ground. Busted its neck. He said, oh, that's how we treat the cottonmouth in the South. You better treat a cottonmouth with some violence, you know what I'm saying? I just, you know, the animosity is my point. That we, we understand the threat, the startling. It, it is put within us by God, between you and the woman. Now, notice this next portion of this verse. Between your seed, now wait a minute, it very specifically does have the germination process contained in that word. And frankly, the woman doesn't bear the seed. Right? Here, your seed and her. Notice the capital S. If your Bible doesn't have it, write right over it. <laughs> Seriously. It's supposed to be. Because it's referring to Jesus Christ. No man contributed his seed to Mary and provided her with child. God used her body to cause her to be pregnant. It was her seed. Now, I had a conversation with a doctor from Jackson Lab who is a believer in regard to this, and she said, it's interesting what they've discovered in genetic studies, that all that is necessary to create a human being can be found in the egg and body of a woman. It's all there. It's just that God uses the chromosome from each to germinate and create the human frame. Point is, if God wants to use just a woman's body to create a child, he's capable of doing it. The information is already inside her body. This is speaking thousands of years beforehand of the coming fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus Christ is going to be the Savior of the world. That the great debt that Eve has created, God's going to cover that debt with his son, Jesus Christ. Notice he, capital H, continuing in verse uh, 15, shall 
bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. My daughter and I were just having a discussion last night about how lethal Legos are. You know what I'm talking about at 4 o'clock in the morning when you're cruising through the kitchen in your bare feet and you can practically die from a Lego. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. I, I have twisted my ankle. I've done the stone bruise thing where you catch it right on the heel and you just cannot believe the pain as you skip and hop and slam into the refrigerator. But, you know, I, I have also done the thing where as you come down on that, the realization of, hey, we're stepping on a Lego enters your mind and you try to avoid the downward crush and you flop forward and roll your ankle and create a bigger injury. You know, it's like injuring yourself, trying not to fall down on the ice, you know, where if you'd just thrown yourself on the ground, it would have been bad. This is the idea of Jesus Christ raising his foot to stomp on the head of the serpent and kill it to destroy the animal. And in the process, the violence of the force injured him. The bruising of the heel in the process of the crushing of the head. That's literally in the Hebrew language what's being described there. He shall bruise your head. The seed, capital S, he, capital H, meaning Jesus, shall bruise your head, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I've heard many of the preacher talk about Satan is dead, he's wiped out, Jesus has crushed his head and destroyed. Yep, very true. The way it's described here is a lethal blow. There's nothing more dangerous than a mortally wounded animal. Right? I had a stupid occasion many years ago where spring of the year, warm sunshine on our enclosed porch warmed up the hornet's nest and we stepped into a room that was filled with hornets. And I went through a process of killing more than two dozen hornets and hosing down the whole nest. And I've gotten myself so agitated that at one point I go through the air with the newspaper rolled up and I smack one right out of the air. But I watch it fly across the room and skid across the floor and I'm thinking, oh, that's going to come back to literally bite me. i got to go hunt that down. So I go over to where I saw it skid and I get down on my hands and knees and I lean right on a hornet that I've already killed. And it stings me on the forearm. That's the second sting of the day. And I was so mad. I couldn't believe it. And I thought it was alive. I thought like, oh, I had no. And I picked it. It's dead. It's stuck in my arm and it's dead. And yet it stung me. Which caused me to think of this verse and that whole imagery. And I went into the research. And sure enough, a dead rattlesnake's venom can kill you. Those fangs, that venom sack, you step on a serpent's head. If the venom is still in it, you can kill yourself. We shouldn't take this passage to mean that Lucifer is of no threat to us. Jesus Christ has delivered the death blow, meaning our team wins. But in the meantime, there is a mortally wounded snake 
who's alive and well in the spiritual well world writhing around that may well lay a lethal blow to you. Treat it with caution. Treat his capabilities as being as deadly and as serious as the scripture describes, right? You get to the New Testament and Peter's telling us to be careful because the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We shouldn't take the statement to think that there's no deadly poison in this snake, Satan. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Every woman that's given birth in the room said, Amen, right? Greatly increase your pain in childbirth, which tells us prior to the fall, the process of childbirth was nowhere near as painful as it is today. It'll be good to return to the way things were. Notice this next curse right here. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, I'll put it as it was, well, more accurate to what it was written originally. Your desire shall be to rule your husband, but he shall rule over you, is what is said there. In the unsaved world, what this means is men are cruel and abusive. Selfish, destructive. That's what it means in the unsaved world. What it means in the saved world is, ladies, the thing that you are always going to struggle with is you're going to want to take charge of that man and direct and guide and rule him. But men... Again, as I described in the sin of Eve bringing the fruit to Adam, if we will submit ourselves to God, we will become so kind and wise and gentle that it will be a lot easier to convince these dear precious sisters that we are capable of leading them in the way that Christ would lead them. If you aren't submitted to Christ, kiss the whole program goodbye. Right? Marriage can be heaven on earth or a living hell, can't it? If we're not submitted to the Lord, if we're not submitted to the Lord, we create a very destructive circumstance. And I mean moment to moment, right? You have to get up every day and crucify the flesh. I could be a gentleman yesterday and wake up today and be a tyrant, unsubmitted to Christ. We need to constantly submit ourselves. Otherwise, this conflict is going to rip us apart. The men will wake up and be jerks, and the ladies will say, I knew it. And they'll try to take charge, and everybody's fighting, and it's a living nightmare. Submission to Christ and both parts is the answer there. It goes on to say in verse 17, then Adam, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, there it is, right? Heed versus lead. 
because you've heeded the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. <clears throat> Trying to find the easy way to gain what you need in life is an effort to try and throw off the curse that God has pronounced upon us, gentlemen. Earning our living is always going to be hard. And if we will embrace that, the program gets a lot easier. If we're always of that mindset of, why can't I ever get ahead why is it always so hard why what you're saying is the curse that god has pronounced upon the human race i reject it if you say that you're saying you're rejecting the authority of god embrace the hard work right our whole lives as believers as as an unbeliever planet earth is the closest you're ever going to come to heaven right as a believer, planet Earth, this is the closest to hell you're ever going to come. If you'll embrace the fact that it's going to be difficult, I have to work hard in order to gain what I need, then it, it becomes entirely about the retirement program. You earn whatever you do along the way, and when you exit this world, you're looking forward to your master saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. The retirement program is what's all for now. The curse is upon every single one of us. Curse is the ground for your sake, for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Now, here's the deal, you guys. Any of you that have done any gardening at all, raised flower beds all the way down to tilling up big acreage, you know that the biggest fight in the program is the weeds. The other thing's going to grow. For every acre of land, there is literally already in place more than a ton of weed seeds. When you till the ground and you start planting your corn, for every acre you're turning up, there's already a ton of weed seeds in that soil. Grass and crabgrass and, you know, dandelion and all those things you're going to have to contend with. It's already there. That's a curse that you're going to have to combat. Know that about your work in general, right? I'm not going to be a farmer then. I don't care where you work. Know that. There's a ton of stuff that's trying to undo everything you're trying to do. You need to cooperate with God in those circumstances. Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. They put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. Adam's sin produced thorns. Thorns for his existence. Jesus Christ took that crown of thorns. We'll talk about that. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, 
and to dust you shall return. Death was the curse placed upon humanity for their rebellion against God. This is the cost, right? Paint the picture again. Keep us on track. Christmas, gifts that are given. When you give to somebody something that relieves them of their debt, their inability to pay, you free them up for whatever other pleasant thing they might want to experience. You know, fill their tank with oil, and now they don't have to worry about that. They can go buy gifts for their kids. You cover their cost, it is a gift. It's a gift in the process. It provides gifts. Eve and Adam basically signed on the dotted line for the whole human race and cursed us all to incredible, unthinkable debt. <laughs> Jesus Christ is going to cover that debt. Jump down to verse 22. We're in Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed a cherubim, that's an angel, at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The fountain of youth, the tree of life, humanity's been fantasizing about this ever since then. Oh, if we could only find the tree of life. Well, here's the thing. The curse of sin is destroying our bodies. If you, what the Lord is saying right here, were have access to the tree of life, then you would be suffering from all the effects of sin while you simultaneously were living forever. It's very gracious of God to put an expiration date upon every one of us so that we'll face our own humanity. There are three basic questions that every human being faces. It's worded in different ways through all of the channels of philosophy. But the three basic questions everyone is asking themselves is, where did I come from? How did I come into existence? What am I doing here? What's my purpose? Why live? And lastly, what happens when I leave? Those are the three basic questions that every human being is asking themselves. Now, maybe you're sitting there right now saying, I've never asked myself that. And sometimes people don't. Basically, they've answered those three questions with, I don't care. I don't care where I came from. I don't care what I'm doing here. I don't care where I go when I leave. But everyone's facing those three basic questions, and you need to answer them. That's the only way you're going to discover peace in your life. Where do they come from? What am I doing? Where do I go when I leave here? If you lay those things to rest with the Word of God, there's a great benefit, a great peace, and a great joy that comes from it. Adam has just entered into that realm where he's under the curse, and death is now his sentence. The human race is actively engaged in trying to overthrow God's curse. Literally, scientists recognize that within the human DNA, there is a built-in structure that repairs damage. You get sick, it fixes that. You get injured, it fixes that. The human frame is designed to repair itself. 
Why does that process break down? That's their question. They're looking for the genetic flaw that stops the self-healing process. There are some scientists that think they're actually getting really close to that. Well, here's the thought. Maybe they're actually going to overcome it. They're still going to have to stand before their maker. If you think I'm just speculating on the idea and throwing that out there, Revelation chapter 9 verse 6 says, In those days, the end of all things. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Maybe, maybe the human race is actually going to discover a way to live for forever and then the sky is going to go black and hundred pound hailstones are going to fall and kill people and locusts are going to emerge from hell and torment people and living on planet earth will be like living in hell and now you get to live forever no thanks and they're trying to find methods to die i don't know i mean i'm speculating quite a bit in this but i i totally know that revelation 9 verse 6 is true there's going to come a point where men are going to try to kill themselves and be unable to and even that is a blessing from the lord because if they succeed in killing themselves they're going straight to hell so god is preserving them seemingly so that they'll repent. They'll get right with him. Move over to the New Testament with me and look at something. Matthew chapter 27. We've got about 15 more minutes. I'll kick in my speed reading process. Matthew 27 says, Then he, meaning Pilate, released Barabbas, a murderous criminal to them, that is the crowd that wanted to crucify Jesus. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole garrison around him. The praetorian guard was so brutal that at one point they actually tried to overthrow the Roman government. They failed in the process, but they were, they've handed Jesus over to the Praetorium Guard, gathered the whole garrison around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him to mock his royalty. Then they twisted a crown of thorns. There it is, brothers and sisters. The curse of Adam, he is now being crowned with it. They put it on his head and a reed in his right hand like a scepter, a symbol of authority, right? Another weed in his right hand. Thorns on his head, weeds in his hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat, spat on him, took the reed and struck him on the head, driving that crown of thorns into his head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him. That's coagulated into the blood of all the scourging tears in his flesh. They ripped that off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away 
to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear the cross. Jesus couldn't bear the weight and was collapsing under it. We have good evidence from the book of Acts that this Simon and his two sons became believers and served in the church. The church seemingly knew Simon very well. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, it actually has a carved, they did uh, quarrying, mining there, and the way the rock is cut out, it actually bears the resemblance of a skull. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink. Go back to the curse that is upon us and trying to throw off the curse. Wine mixed with gall is a very powerful sedative. Had Jesus drank of this, his pain on the cross would have been dramatically reduced. He refuses it. He would not drink it. You say, oh, well, he drank wine on a sponge later, right, so that he could shout to the crowd statements that they needed to hear. And it was simply wine, one mouthful of wine to clear his parched throat so that he could speak to the crowd, not to sedate his consciousness. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments thousands of years earlier. This was prophesied. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is the king of the Jews. That is commonly what the Romans did. If you were a thief and you had been caught and they were going to crucify you, they would it, they were so brutal. They would nail you to the cross and stand that up and above your head there would simply be a handwritten plaque that said thief. Now, Jesus dies in a matter of hours here. But Roman history has on record people who hung on the cross for 14 days, alive, suffering in torment, begging for people to give them a drink, soak a sponge, lift it up to my mouth. You're being cruel at that point, keeping a person alive. It was an advertisement. It was a living, horrific, rated X billboard. They would strip the people naked and nail them on the cross with their crime posted above their head. And they would usually do it at every entrance of the city. If there were three gates in and out of the city, they'd wait till they had three people. Literally. When, they're get, when are they going to execute me? I want to get this over with. We don't have two other guys. You've got to wait. They would wait until they could crucify people at each entry point so that everybody going in and out of the city would have to see that and they would be horrified at the thought of rebelling against Rome, right? Insurrectionist, thief, you know? Yeah, I'm not doing any of that stuff. The accusation written above the head. If they crucified me or you for our sins, the list would be long. Long. What was Jesus' crime? 
the only thing he'd ever done was be declared king of the Jews. Above his head, the king of the Jews. The, the Jews wanted that change. No, no, you need to put above his head, he said he was the king of Jews. And Pilate said, no, it is what I have written. He is the king of the Jews. And there's good evidence that he actually believed that. Verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right hand, another on the left. This is the image of salvation right here, you guys. You got two choices, accept Jesus or reject Jesus. That's salvation. It's that simple. You don't have to then be baptized in a particular way. You don't have to wear certain clothes or not do this and then always do that. A long list of legalistic application. No. This is the image God wanted to paint of what salvation is. Two robbers crucified with him, one on the right hand, another on the left. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple, build it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. They're misinterpreting what Jesus had actually said. He was saying to the crowd at one point, Destroy me, kill me, and I'll raise myself back to life in three days. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, is what he was saying. They interpret that to mean that he's going to destroy the temple. That's usually how it goes, right? People that want to ridicule your faith completely misinterpret everything that you have to say. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. you got to understand, somebody needs to slap those guys right in the face, right? He saved others. Yeah, yeah. Dozens of lepers showed up in your temple, and you had to put them through the cleansing ceremony because Jesus had healed them. The blind show up, able to see. The lame can walk. People who had had severed limbs, Jesus restored their limbs to their body. Yeah, he saved others, and now you dare raise your voice against him? Saved others, save himself. But he said, For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. See, they both are mocking Jesus. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing the separation we experience from God every single day. I'm sure you've had occasions where you've had a wonderful period of time where you've been in fellowship with the Lord and you've been so blessed and you were left thinking, I wish I could just maintain this all the time. And then you drift and you struggle in your flesh. And you have to restore yourself again. And onward goes the battle and the struggle. Day by day, having to crucify yourself in order to live with Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was the exact opposite. He was always in fellowship with the Father, unbroken communication with God, never faltering in his walk, 
And there at the Garden of Gethsemane, he's being presented with, you're going to have to take on the sins of humanity. And he is saying to God, please let that cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. As he embraced our sin, and now that he's taken on our sin, my sin and your sin, he's experiencing separation from God for the first time, and it torments his soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The distance between us and God, he's experiencing for the same for the first time. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah, the Eli Eli. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it to on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That thief had turned to him in the other gospels and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and said, I tell you, that today you will be with me in paradise. He'd gone from rejecting the Lord to accepting the Lord. And he was given salvation in that moment. Verse 51, we've just got a little bit more here. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks split. Before we move forward, within that experience, the veil in the temple separated what is referred to as the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place had the Ark of the Covenant inside it, and only the high priest could go in there, and only once a year. The presence of God could only be experienced by the high priest. Jesus, in this moment, becomes our high priest. He's fulfilled the sacrifice that's going to take away the sin of Adam and Eve that has cursed the entire human race from Genesis chapter 3, where we started our reading this morning. Right here is the moment where God does the work to restore humanity's relationship with him. He removes the barrier. The, the veil is torn top to bottom so that anyone can now have access to the most holy place through the blood of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Notice verse 52, it says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And their glorified resurrected bodies. Many witnesses to their resurrection. People Look at this and say, that is a really weird thing to just be recorded in the scripture. And how could that be? And why? And they got all kinds of questions. I have a personal opinion. It is only an opinion. Hell was separated. The place of the dead, I should say it that way, was separated into two chambers. There was those who were condemned of God living in a fiery torment. You can look at Luke chapter 6 and see this as Jesus describes. Then Abraham's bosom. All those who had died in faith waiting for the coming of the Messiah and the salvation that he would bring. It seems that Jesus Christ descended 
and perhaps, perhaps shared with them for three days his salvation. And then when he exited and was resurrected, perhaps they came with him. Well, why weren't they seen after this? Jesus was on the earth for 40 days. Maybe they were on the earth for 40 days. And then when he ascended back to his throne, perhaps they went with him. There's some speculation involved in all of that. But his resurrection power provides them with life and resurrection. It says, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, so the commanding officer over all the other Roman guards that were there, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of Zebedee's sons. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ, his death, the blood, the body, given to us as a gift, as evidence. Evidence that he had overcome the worst possible thing you'll ever experience, death. If you'll trust in that, you'll experience resurrection. Like I said, if someone pays off all of your debt, they've provided you with a tremendous amount of freedom to go live in an entirely different manner. No more house payment, no more car payment, no more payments, no, no more debt. Your electricity's free, your heat's free, everything's free. If you have been provided with absolute freedom, that will change your life. That will change your life. Jesus Christ has provided us with freedom. The greatest gift ever given. Frees us from all other things. To close, Jesus speaking. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I want to explain that just briefly and then close with verse 3 and 4. In my Father's house are many mansions. The Greek language, Jesus says right there, in my Father's presence, there are many permanent dwelling places. I go to prepare one of them for you. You read the book of Corinthians and Paul the Apostle tells us that this body we are living in is a tent and it's wearing out. And we will someday exit this tent and go to live in one of these permanent dwelling places. If you grew up in churches and you heard the pastors telling you that you were going to have a mansion in heaven someday, it was a misinterpretation of what Jesus said right here. You're going to have a permanent glorified body that is similar in its function and appearance to Jesus Christ's resurrected body. 
Sin is erased, right? Adam and Eve were intended to live in those bodies they had been given for eternity. They sinned and they crippled and cursed that body to death. And we're experiencing the slow process of death right now. Entropy is tearing our bodies apart. We are breaking down moment to moment. Some of us faster than others. Some of us are working hard to counteract all of the deterioration. Others of us are like, hey, you know, might as well enjoy the ride. Tent. Temporary body. Permanent dwelling place. Jesus has prepared for us. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. The way is to accept Jesus. You, you reject him, you're rejecting the way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You want to enter the presence of God? The veil has been torn. Access has been granted. Accept him. That's, that's as simple as it goes. How do I do that? Here you go. One more time. Ready, class? Confess that you're a sinner. <coughs> Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. Ask him to give you his Holy Spirit. Ask him to make you a child of God. There are lots of other details that you can find in the scripture and sort of mix in there, but that's how this simple the program is. Admit you're dying from sin. Ask for forgiveness. Ask to be made a child of God, and he will do it. I've done that. I didn't feel like anything happened. It really doesn't matter how you feel. Right? The gift, the fulfillment, comes at the finish line, and he's the one that provides it. We've all just experienced Christmas. To whatever degree each of us has experienced Christmas. When someone else gave you a gift, right, you weren't involved in that process. They gave it and you accepted it. That's how eternal life works. Jesus Christ has provided. All we have to do is accept it. In the process, all of the debt is erased and it changes every aspect of our life so that we can live in freedom. Now, while that's awesome and probably all of us have accepted and embraced that, the beautiful thing is we get to take that gift and then take it out to others and give them that gift. We, we become the distributors of Christ's gift. Rejoice in what you've received and what you've experienced, but make sure you're a person who is handing that on. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Freely you have received, freely give. Father, we thank you for your word, for your graciousness, your forgiveness, and all that you have provided through the sacrifice of your son. Help us to be men and women who embrace it and distribute it, that the world would experience your great treasure, your great reward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.